0: Lithium Americas targets millennial lithium in a $400 million deal, and gold miners are warning about cost inflation. You're listening to Kiko Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Kiko correspondent Paul Harris is in. Hi, Paul. Hey, Michael. Good afternoon. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hello, everybody. Happy weekend. And with us is Gwen Preston. She is the resource maven. Gwen, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: It looks like you're going to be at the Metal Investor Forum, and it looks like you're going to be finally face-to-face.
1: Yes. Um, exciting. And, and in, I'm excited to be at a face-to-face conference again uh, for MIF to be face-to-face. I'm uh, also interested to see, you know, how the numbers will be. Everybody has their own takes on uh, what they need to do in this COVID world. But yes, we will be at the uh, Hotel Marriott that's attached to the casino in Vancouver. And that's coming up on uh, November 12th and 13th. So if you have any interest, uh, please go to metalsinvestorforum.com and sign up. We, uh, we, we, uh specifically booked a very large venue so there will be lots of room for spacing so we won't be crowded in there if that if that makes you feel more comfortable with coming we won't be crowded there'll be lots of room in the presentation hall and between the booths and i'm excited to just be able to chat with people again so uh hopefully we can see some of you there
0: uh back to sub gwen what is the um what is the resource maven
1: So Resource Maven is my business. I write a series of newsletters to help investors who are interested in the metals and mining space uh, see opportunity. And I do that by just describing in my newsletters uh, what I am buying and selling with my own money. And I have a colleague who writes newsletters alongside me. His name is Peter Kraut. And between us, we write news, uh, a couple of different newsletters aimed at your level of expertise in the space and your risk tolerance. And those usually go hand in hand, right? So if you like, if you have lots of knowledge and you like the high risk stories, then my Maven letter is probably more up your alley. If you don't have a lot of risk tolerance and perhaps don't have as much knowledge, then Peter's gold resource investor might be up your alley. And Peter also writes something Called the silver stock investor for all the silver buffs out there. Niels, we had a jobs report today.
2: Uh, we did. It was. It was actually. It was a fantastic report. So well, okay. It was. It was a good report. Um, probably as I get down, it'll, you know. You uh, know. But no, it was. It was a good report. So, five hundred thirty-five thousand jobs were created in October. Uh, the unemployment rate fell to four point six percent. Unfortunately, the participation rate also fell down. Uh, to six uh, or uh, fell to uh, 61 point some odd, um, you know, so, so there's still people not entering the workforce, which is, which is really interesting. It led to another um, interesting component in the report. And this, I think, is what gold is taking uh, its cue from, and that's wages. Wages grew 0.4% uh, last month, For the year, it's grown 4.9% in the last 12 months. And uh, it's because uh, uh, companies are basically forced to raise wages to try to bring people back into the workforce. I mean, you just look around and there are, you know, for hire signs everywhere you look. Uh, You know, I've talked to people around the world and they just they say the same things that, you know, companies are are desperate for for workers right now. Um, And this is leading to to wage inflation and. Um, the inflation threat is is growing and it's, and it's solidifying. Uh, and that's why, you know, so I'm really excited because gold is uh, not only are we above uh, $1,800 an ounce, the first uh, week above $1,800 an ounce uh, since late September, but we're also at a, a six-week high, or sorry, an eight-week high in the price uh, last time I checked. So yeah, I mean, it just is a, a whole bunch of things that are, that are now... Uh, coming together
0: for the gold market, I think. Uh, it was. We're going to get into uh, the inflation discussion and the wage uh, pressures in a minute, uh, Niels. But um, it really was kind of an interesting week because uh, you would have thought that gold would have taken, um, you know, two hits. Uh, just that we had such a, you know, we had such a strong jobs report, and then uh, there was also the news that the Fed is going to be reducing bond purchases earlier this week.
2: Well, and so this is what I see. Like this is why everything's coming together. Yes. The Federal Reserve is, is tapering its monthly bond purchases. However, Powell came out and he was very clear, um, we are not ready to raise interest rates just yet. Um, markets are actually pricing in a, a June rate hike. Um, and this, is, this actually surprises me a lot. Um, but, uh, and I think those expectations, after listening to what Powell said, I think those expectations have to start being pared back a little bit. And this is why gold is, is catching a bit. We actually saw gold. The rally started uh, on Thursday after people had a chance to digest the Fed. Um, it actually, it reminds me a little bit of 2015. You know, gold bottomed out just as the Fed started to, to raise interest rates after the, the 2008 financial crisis. And, you know, and that was, you know, everybody says it. you know, that was the low in gold. Um, you know, and and it went up from there as they were raising rates. So I think, you know, what the gold market really, really likes is, is sort of certainty and Powell, Powell gave that, you know, we've, we've been talking about tapering since, uh, uh, June, uh, since really the start of the year, um, you know, but it's, it's, you know, will they, when will they, all of this stuff. And now finally, you know, we have the news, we know what the plan looks like. And Powell's come out and said, you know what, tapering has nothing to do with interest rates and interest rates are going to be low. So, you know, gold has room here.
0: Gwen?
1: I agree with what Niels was saying there. Absolutely. Um, I think what, have we been obsessed with tapering for the last six months? Man, we've been obsessed with tapering since the great financial crisis. We've been obsessed with interest rates and tapering for a really long time. The market now turns on that stuff. So, The fact that gold didn't really respond to the the tapering news, um, I loved because, in fact, the markets as a whole didn't respond. And I loved it because, well, it was the most telegraphed move in monetary policy history ever. Like nobody, (laughs) there had never been a move that we all knew was coming with such clarity. And is that a good or bad thing? Doesn't really matter. It is the way that it works now. So we all knew that the tapering announcement was happening. Um, The detachment from rates, like tapering being detached from rates, also interesting, makes sense, partly because guess what? I don't think raising rates is going to unload freighters in LA any faster. I don't think it's going to build microchip um, factories any faster. The things that are really causing inflation right now are a bit detached from the forces, uh, the things that rate hikes would usually do. So the Fed is in this really screwed up position where rate hikes wouldn't really probably have the encounter inflationary force that they usually have and yes inflation is very real um but it's a very weird position and i think the fed needed to tighten and tapering was this perfect solution where it could tighten by tapering without actually doing the tightening thing that the markets hate which is raising interest rates so the fed did exactly what it needed to do and um at this point yeah the bond market had been a lot more hawkish and bond traders have now in the last 24 hours been like, oh, maybe we were a bit too hawkish. How this will all play out, we shall see. Um, But yes, I think we're set up for a pretty strong period here for gold as the reality of no interest rate hikes for quite some time really settles in.
3: Oh, I think um, just following on from that, when when we're talking about sort of trade flows and ports and stuff like that, supply chain issues, um, I saw some, you know, data and the, uh, The trade flows aren't actually falling or or lower. They're actually at record levels. It's just because of the supply chain disruptions, freight rates have gone up, which is changing the the makeup of the trade flows, i.e. the the freight space is going to the people that are prepared to pay more for it, which means high value products are shipping around, uh, whilst perhaps the, the things we actually really need that are low value are not.
0: We've certainly seen within uh, the quarterlies that have come out that, uh, well, let's get into the inflation discussion. Um, You know, and I I know that you've been reporting on this too, Paul, that uh, we've seen the inflation story come through in the quarterly. So Agnico Eagle was talking about what they're seeing on uh, there's going to be seeing on their diesel prices. That's going to be going through to explosives, for instance, Never mind what they're seeing on wage inflation. Uh, Just talk to uh, Wheaton Precious Metals and they were saying the same thing. They're just seeing these escalating prices. I will say that does play into the theme of if you, are a gold miner because uh, you know you are interested in the inflation theme so you actually have a demonstrable purpose of that you actually see what is actually happening with uh, your inflation prices and the prices upgrades and that also feeds well into the precious metal theme i do worry about this though because i do see that uh, you know uh, you know Lumber says high. I mean, iron ore says high. You know, we've seen these great uh, increases. We've seen these great run-ups, and then you've seen that these uh, commodity prices have come right back down again. Paul,
3: yeah, I think uh, in, when we're speaking to some mining companies, particularly developers, you know, still diesel, uh, cement, those prices are all going up. Engineering prices, costs are starting to go up. But it's uh, also the, the supply chain disruption is impacting sort of the, the sort of nitty-gritty stuff like uh, reagents, um, cyanide, oxygen, things like that that companies need actually in, in their processes. Uh, because container shipping is getting more expensive, these things are getting harder to get and more expensive to get.
0: Yeah. And if you're also trying to get out a quarter, then I mean, this is something that is going to be very top of mind for you. Niels, Well, I just wanted to sort of add something. I mean, not only like would rate hikes, sort of what Gwen was saying,
2: not only would, would, um, you know, rate hikes not really uh, impact the inflationary uh, uh, issue, you know, because it's a supply side, but you could argue that um, rate hikes would actually be even worse because it's restricting capital for CapEx. You know, companies, what we really need is more companies to come out and, and build, you know, build infrastructure to make more chips, to make more widgets, to make everything like that, you know, like now is is now the time when we have a supply crunch is now the time to um, reduce uh, sort of liquidity in in the global economy, I I would argue, you know, it's not and this is why actually, uh, we saw the Bank of England as well. Um, They were their expectations for them were to hike interest rates. And they didn't. And I think, you know, People are starting to realize that they're they're really stuck. You know, we we still need this liquidity in the in the global economy to to try to keep things going. Otherwise, you know, the gears are just going to grind to a halt. Gwen,
1: I think just on that Bank of England comment, there's been this whatever characterization of that going around as the unreliable boyfriend, which is just to capture that the uh, the bank there telegraphed like. It seemed almost explicitly two weeks ago that they were going to raise rates like it was very it was. It seemed like they were saying this is going to happen in two weeks, and then they didn't so that's that's the silly characterization that's being given, Um, but I think the fact that they didn't just underlines what I was saying that they're in a rock and a hard place. And raise interest rates and like how is that going to help and it has quite a bit of risk of hurting so we should because there's this inflation but we shouldn't because i don't know if it's going to help and it might hurt things and and they're they're really in a tough spot and uh when you're in a tough spot central bankers are hesitant to make moves because the last thing they want to do is cause a recession it hasn't been a great decade you know great financial crisis um covid chinese trade wars like it's been a, it's been a bit of a tough decade so like you know central bankers as a whole brexit they're they're in a bit of a they really don't want to rock the ship that has just sailed through to just is just like tentatively exiting the latest storm so yeah they're they're in a tough spot which is good for gold investors because i really think the pressure is going to have to be quite real and obvious before rate hikes are on the table
0: one thing that's been interesting about this uh, gold discussion though, and then talking about inflation is, is that I just don't hear anything about the debt story anymore. I mean, that was really the driving narrative uh, going back a year ago for uh, what was happening with gold, but uh, the, this inflation piece seems to have taken all over, uh, Niels.
2: Well, actually that's a big part of it. And this is why, so um, really interesting. Uh, Bank of America came up with a report uh, uh, last week uh, that I got to write up uh, on Monday. They actually see five rate hikes. Um, starting late 2022, um, all the way through uh, 2023, um, they see five rate hikes, but they see uh, this cap at two percent. You know, so like the, the, the neutral rate used to be around four, maybe five percent, um, and now it's down to two. And that they say is is specifically because governments are are are, are massively uh, in debt. You know, because of because of all the spending with COVID. Um, so, yeah, so what what's going to happen is, um, you know, a, a further rock in a hard place. Um, they're just they're really limited in, in what they can do. So I think, you know, they're really trying to preserve their, their ammunition for for when they really, really need it, because it's just it's going to be so limited. You know, they, they, you can't have interest rates at 4% when, you know, the 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 budget deficit is at what,
3: 26 trillion
2: dollars and growing.
0: Paul?
3: so The debt is perhaps tomorrow's story. You know, The media's perhaps got that one in the bag for when rates do start going up and the governments can't pay their money. They're going to have a field day then. World
0: Gold Council also noted a 7% drop in demand for precious metals in the third quarter, almost exclusively driven by ETFs. Niels, what did the gold survey say this week? Um,
2: the gold survey actually was, was quite bullish. Um, okay, so it, it was mixed bullish, um, so uh, analysts last week they were bearish ahead of the Fed. Now they're obviously bullish, uh, uh, 50 uh, fifty-some-one percent over a majority. Um, retail investors actually they were really bullish last week, but they've pared that down. They're now fifty-two percent bullish. Um, but the, rea- the the reality is that gold prices have room to move higher. The question though is a lot of guys are watching um, eighteen thirty-five. That is the a uh, uh, downtrend point that gold really needs to break. And, and we've sort of seen that price fail um, twice now um, over the over the last few months. And uh, that's the level that we need to get above. So there's lots of optimism in the market, but there's also uh, a lots of, of cautious optimism in the market.
0: We saw this week uh, on uh, crypto that uh, Ethereum uh, ran ahead of the pack. Uh, It was uh, on track, they should say, for about uh, five thousand, and it had a support level around four thousand. Niels, um, when we see the um, when we see the uh, fight between uh, gold and uh, crypto in terms of what is going to be the better inflation hedge, uh, you really do see a lot of I should you say you see a lot of press around uh, crypto and uh, people that are looking towards it in terms of an inflation hedge.
2: Um, I would actually also. Like to get Gwen's comments on this. I I don't. I'm I'm starting to to like crypto. Um, I think it does have a potential to be a a uh, uh, alternative uh, currency in that you know you can use it to to buy you know sneakers or or whatever. Um, you know this the, the the world of internet whatever. I I, I, I see a potential. Um, I don't know if it's really an inflationary hedge. This is the first time it's gonna be tested as an inflation hedge. Um, and I just, you know, I, I think it's, it's premature. You know, gold has, you know, if you wanna use the cliches, 5,000 years of history, um, you know, it has, it's proven itself as an inflation hedge. Um, and I think that if, if you are a savvy investor, you should probably bet on the, on the sure thing and, and not you know uh, an idea
0: Gwen
1: I agree very much that we haven't that the lack of evidence uh, for crypto as an inflation in terms of what it's going to do in an inflation world I, I agree with that we don't know um but you know just past doesn't always tell you what future is so and and also What's the point? Why are people buying crypto? Well, they're buying it for two reasons. If you want to just paint with broad strokes, they're buying it because it is an alternative currency paradigm, and they're buying it because investors are obsessed with rampant speculation. Those are sort of the two buckets into which this falls. Um, So I think there's things to consider um, on both of those sides. On the rampant speculation side of things, um, you know, stocks can keep going up in, in a pretty inflationary environment. I mean, it isn't until and that is because people are trying to find a place to put their dollars that isn't dollars and so they put them into stocks that's one thing that happened I remember someone just this week was telling me a story about um, a friend who was in Zimbabwe when that currency was going nuts and the stock market was going nuts right alongside it because people were desperately trying to put their money somewhere Um, is that going to play into cryptos being an inflation hedge well I think that there's reasonably good chance that that is how that plays out because it melds the rampant speculation Obsession that is very apparent in the investment world these days, with the okay, what are we gonna how are we gonna protect ourselves against inflation? The other comment that I have on the inflation side of things is that there is no doubt that cryptos are competing with gold for as as a hedge, as an alternative investment. And yeah. um, and they're winning uh if, of late. I would say the fact that cryptos have been doing so well and gold equities are boring to down despite a historically strong gold price is pretty good evidence that cryptos are winning right now now is it a winner or loser or battle no it isn't there's room there's always been room out there for more than one hedge to inflation more than one safe haven that's fine um and so i do think that gold is still going to work i think there's a lot of people who have whatever level of doubt in cryptos or want to do both whatever it is i really do think that gold's going to work but i think it would be naive to think that just because gold has a history means that it's going to be the go-to um in the inflation hedge basket.
3: Oh, I'm just going to add the asinine Luddite comment that uh, you know, 5,000 years' time, archaeologists are still going to be digging up hordes of gold. I very much doubt they're going to be digging up hordes of crypto. <laughs> uh,
0: one more note uh, before we leave macro. Um, I just want to uh, talk about uh, the reporting at Bloomberg, which uh, says that uh, the mood in China has, ta- has turned decidedly bearish. Uh, there's a real overhang right now from what is happening with the uh, implosion of Evergrande and uh, what's happening with the rental market. You also look at the difficulties in terms of uh, securing uh, energy supplies uh, and uh, looking for rationing and tightening. Uh, Also, there's been concerns about uh, Taiwan, uh, how would you say, uh, coming to Coming a bit more to a head right now, uh, it's 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 vitally important to the health of the mining industry because uh, China is a predominant um, is the uh, predominant uh, source, or I should say, the consumer of metals, and uh, we depend upon that country in terms of driving its resources. Um, let's turn to miners, uh, developers, and juniors. But first, our sponsor, Cisco Mining, is drilling out its flagship windfall gold deposit, one of the highest-grade resource-stage gold projects in Canada, with a world-class scale. If you follow the junior space, you have seen Windfall's headlines. Windfall is located in Quebec, a tier one mining jurisdiction operated by Cisco's mine of trusted and experienced mining executives. It has held the distinction of being Canada's biggest drill program. Windfall has announced a series of bonanza grades from drilling and a new discovery one kilometer north. A preliminary economic assessment on the project estimated that the first seven years of full operation would produce 300,000 ounces of gold per year at an average grade of 82 one grams per ton gold and an all-in sustaining cost of $610 an ounce gold capital expenditures just 544 million windfall is estimated to generate 8.2 billion in gross revenue and 1.7 billion in taxes that's Assisco Cisco mining and we thank them for their support Paul quite a week in mining and juniors
3: Absolutely. A very interesting week. And for me, the standout news uh, is that Barrick Gold is making a move in Canada in the Red Lake District of Ontario, having signed earning agreements with two juniors, who nobody's ever heard of before, whose properties sandwich the Dixie property of Great Bear Resources. Barrick struck carbon copy agreements with Red Lake Gold and Dixie Gold, under which it can earn a 70% interest by incurring at least $4 million in exploration expenditures within four years, and delivering a resource of at least 500,000 ounces. I spoke to Mark Bristow early this week. He told me he wants to consolidate the district. Great Bear's Dixie has been a standout exploration success over the past two years with almost 300,000 metres drilled and a maiden resource estimate is due early in 2022. Barrack has about $5 billion of cash on its balance sheet and so could easily manage a decent premium over Great Bear's current $1 billion market capitalization. Great Bear's stock is up uh, from about $16 a share to $20 a share this week on Pure Speculation. In Africa, uh, China's Qifong Jilong Gold Mining uh, announced it will acquire Golden Star resources for $470 million US in cash. Uh, its it's $3.91 per share offer represents a 37% premium there. Golden Star's main asset is the Wasa underground mine in Ghana. Which is expected to produce about 150,000 ounces of gold this year. Uh, we also had a, a mine start-up this week in Mexico, or, or not the start-up first gold port. Minera Alamos made a, its initial delivery of about 400 ounces from its Santana gold project in Sonora. It said uh, leaching commenced at the start of August and results to date have confirmed the rapid gold extraction kinetics uh, seen during heat leach pad tests. Um, Animos said the leech pads extract about sixty-seven, sorry, 60% of the gold in an average of 30 to 40 days. Uh, some big drilling results out this week. Kirkland Lake Gold announced results from 39 drill holes um, at its Detour Lake property in Ontario, um, as it works to convert part of its recently announced 10.1 million ounce increase in resources into reserves to put into a new mine plan. The company said the majority of holes released were from the saddle zone, between the existing main pit and planned west pit locations, which currently has no reserves, with highlights of 25.5 metres grading 20 grams per tonne, including 6 metres at 67 grams per tonne. On Canada's Pacific coast, Seabridge Gold said early results from drilling at its KSM project in British Columbia from this year, support a reshaping of the project to integrate the snowfield deposit, which it acquired in late 2020. It said incorporating Snowfield could enhance gold reserves, projected annual gold production, and payback, while also deferring and reducing major capital expenditures associated with a block cave development. Confirmation is expected in the June quarter of next year, when a new preliminary feasibility study is scheduled for completion. The hundred million dollar Snowfield acquisition added twenty five million ounces of measured and indicated resources and 75 million ounces of silver and three billion pounds of copper to KSM's considerable resources. Finally, in the, uh, the battery metal space, another big m um, and announcement, Lithium Americas has come in with an unsolicited $400 million Canadian cash offer to buy millennial lithium and its $4.70 per share offer provides a 22% premium over the offer already on the table from Contemporary Amex Technology, or CATL. Although Millennium entered into a definitive agreement with CATL, its board determined Lithium Americas a superior proposal, giving CATL 10 days to match it. Should its offer triumph, Lithium Americas expects it will be able to generate synergies around suppliers, reagents, contractors, and personnel with its 40,000 tonne per year Kachari Oliver's uh, operation that it's looking to develop in partnership with Genfeng Lithium, which is due on stream in 2020. Curiously, Genfeng Lithium made the initial offer on millennial lithium way back when. Gwen,
0: um, I'm gonna ask you a question that I asked uh, Randy Smallwood just uh, two hours ago when I was uh, talking about his Q3, and it ties into uh, what uh, Paul was just talking about uh, with the Americans and the millennial deal. Uh, how are we doing with uh, m in uh, the precious metal space? Um, you know, It's really been a theme that uh, we've been having this roundtable, and it just seems that there just seems to be so much uh, frenetic activity just kind of going on in the battery material space where you just see all of these acquisitions. Uh, it seems in the precious metal space, I would kind of argue, it seems to be muted. We had the 2019 where you saw those big moves by uh, Barrick and uh, Newmont uh, but um, you know, notably milestones that I've seen that have happened in uh, this year. I mean, it kicked off with Agnico Eagle and the TMac. Uh, there was the 400 million that uh, Paul Harris uh, just talked about. But I would have expected that there just would have been more activity.
1: So I think there's a few factors at play here. There has been activity. I mean, Agnico Eagle and Kirkland are merging. That's a pretty significant move. Um, and there there have been things bought. Um, there have so um we all as gold investors the whole structure of the gold space is that like juniors find assets develop them and then those assets get taken up that's the business model of the junior space so we are unusually obsessed with m&a because we we need it to fuel how the business cycle works and i get that that's fine um but um that obsession i i think we and, and so that means we want to see more deals. And I get it, there, were, there was a bunch of big deals right at the beginning that didn't benefit the individual investor that much. Like the, may, the mega mergers of, uh, of the start of this bull market didn't really benefit the, the individual investor. So yeah, we want more deals. They are slowly happening. I think the hesitation is reach you know way back in your memory to 2009 and recall how crappy the deals were back then. They were terrible. They erased billions of dollars in shareholder value. Um, and so, yes, while the specific people at the helm of the mining companies are now different, and rightfully so, because those pe- the people who made those terrible decisions have been turfed, the new teams are, I think, reticent to make the wrong move. And so, and in general, there isn't a big rush to make deals um, especially when you're still in a market where prices stock prices aren't they're not skyrocketing by any means so like the pressure is not really on it's a bit of a lemmings thing you know once one d- makes a move then they're all going to want to make moves together so yes there will be a tipping point at some point and they will start making more deals but i think they are justifiably cautious on making deals because they don't absolutely need to make deals today uh, they see inflation pressures coming, cutting into their cash, and the market is only just giving them much thanks for being net cash and handing out fantastic dividends. So they're they're only <laughs> so they're staying in a comfortable place right now. By they, I mean the major mining companies are staying in a place that's comfortable and safe. They're paying dividends, they're doing share buybacks, they're making lots of money. Um, they're waiting to see how inflation plays out, and they're not making bad deals. Yes, they're also in general not making good deals either, but they can still do those. And because they have net cash, well, if they pay 20% more for an asset just down the road, so be it. Now, what Paul mentioned about Barrick signing these JVs surrounding Great Bears Dixie, I do not, I don't understand what's going on there. It's the weirdest piece of news that's come out in quite a long time. Those companies are almost non-existent companies, the management of both companies is exactly the same. They haven't done any work on those assets. And Barrick, should it want to buy Great Bear, there isn't a geological area play there. The reason that Great Bear is the success that it is is because Chris Taylor and Bob Singh, the two geologists who are in charge of that company, came up with a new geologic premise for gold mineralization in Red Lake. They demonstrated that that premise is correct by defining this incredible... I'm going to say deposit, even though they don't have a resource estimate, but zone of mineralization deposit along this LP fault. But before they even started, they covered the whole fault. They weren't going to like leave part of it hanging when their theory is the reason that it worked. So anyways, the projects that Barrick bought do not cover particularly significant geologic terrain. I could be proven wrong, but at this point, the LP fault is already many, many kilometers long and there's a lot of gold there. So it's weird. Is Barrick interested in Great Bear? They darn well should be. Every major out there, I am sure, is in Great Bear's data room because Great Bear has an absolutely standout asset, Um, but it's a very weird deal. Um, The fact that it created such response in Great Bear's share price, though, absolutely reflects our obsession, maybe that's an unnecessarily negative word, but our obsession with MA. everybody is looking for the hint that a takeout is coming for Great Bear because Great Bear will get taken out this cycle and everybody just wants to be in ahead of that offer, which should offer some nice premium against the price that stands. So yeah, interesting moves, um, understandable to some degree. We all wish there would be a bit more and uh, that's been reflected in Great Bear's share price move this week. Yeah. Well, bear
3: has uh, got perhaps one of the best data rooms uh, open to everybody in the industry. Um, I think another interesting fact is those two juniors; their <laughs> combined market caps is probably less than Mark Bristow's annual salary. Um, that's how small they are. Um, and following on from some of uh, you know Gwen's comments um, about uh, not miners not wanting to blow their wads, you know the the mining CEOs I've spoken to this week they talk about how. They either don't see attractive assets out there or the valuations aren't attractive. They don't see potential deals as being accretive in value to their shareholders. And so uh, a number of companies are ramping up their exploration budgets, Barrett Gold, Agnico Eagle, B2 Gold, and and returning to have a, a greater focus on Greenfield's exploration. The message coming out is they want to find their next projects, not necessarily buy them.
0: We had Ian Telfer on this last week, though. Um, He was quite critical of the space, uh, just talking about uh, that there should be more growth. Uh, You know, he says, you know, there's dividends that are happening, but you're not really necessarily the average investor that's buying a gold miner is not buying it for dividends. They just want to see more growth. I I think um, I've made this point before in this podcast. I I just think that between, you know, gold is stuck between uh, crypto and uh, what's happening in battery metals. And in those spaces, you know, investors see growth and they're going to be rewarded for kind of making those those aggressive. Of deals uh the deals that uh, you just announced uh, regarding around america's and also again what is Sabanya stillwater has been doing um gwen what's a, what's a sput
1: <laughs> sounds like you're just tripping over your tongue um but it is the sprott physical uranium trust and it is the thing that's making waves in the uranium space. So if you want um, a space that is dynamic and exciting right now, um, even beyond battery metals, that is the spot, That's uranium. Uh, let me just do a, a brief look back so that the, the look forward makes a bit more sense. So, um, you know, Uranium, the uranium market had been dramatically oversupplied in the wake of Fukushima, um, and so the the prices were terrible. Nobody was making any money. I mean, investors for sure, but absolutely not producers. The only reasons they were surviving was because they had these long-term contracts that were signed um, at much higher prices previous. Um, To their great credit, in 2016, the uranium producers of the world looked at each other and said, we're being dumb. We should stop producing so much uranium because we're only perpetuating this bad market and so they banded together to cut uranium production and they did a very good job of it so they curtailed they shut some mines they curtailed some mines and some other players in the space started sequestering pounds as well so they created things like the yellow cake fund that just holds physical uranium there are a few other funds that cropped up to just buy and hold physical uranium take it out of the mix that all worked to help. It bottomed the price, it lifted it to some extent. It was still a bit unexciting in, you know, 2018, 2019. It was trading up from its low below 20 bucks a pound to, you know, the 25 range fine. Then COVID hit, and um, producers were forced into a bunch more curtailments that they did not want to do that shot the price up, but then some of those came back online, things eased. Um so the price was uh, somewhat strengthening very gradually until the middle of August. Um, and in the middle of August, that's when SPOT debuted, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Sprott is a group that really, that has a lot of expertise in physical commodity trusts. So they've done it with gold, they've done it with silver, now they're doing it with uranium. If you want exposure to a commodity, but you don't want to actually own and hold that commodity, Um, and you don't want to just own an ETF where they buy the stuff, but then they like loan it out all over the place and they don't actually have their hands on it, then SPUT is a very good option for you, or they're the gold version of it, or the silver version of it. So they have a lot of expertise in doing it. They decided as a group that there was a huge opportunity for them to create that kind of vehicle in uranium, on a business sense, because nobody else was doing it, there was this thing called uranium participation, but it was a very limited, small version thereof, and they just took that over and turned it into something bigger and better, and because they just see commodity price upside. At $25 a pound, not a single uranium producer in the world is making money, and that has to change because there isn't enough uranium being produced to feed demand going forward. So there's, so they figured, why don't we just buy a bunch of uranium? and In doing so, continue to help sop up any excess that remains in the market, give ourselves a bunch of uranium to enjoy um, gains on when the price moves, and help the price move by becoming a huge new buyer in the spot market. And it worked like a hot dam. Between the 16th of August and the middle of September, the spot price of uranium went from like, whatever, $26 to 50. It was like a crazy move. And of course, it then stepped back because nothing just shoots straight to the moon and then it gained again and it's now stepping back again and then it, now it looks like it's it's gaining again. I think that there's a bunch more room to run in this, um, I could dive into that, but that's what Spud is. Spud is a new massive buyer in the physical uranium space, they're cleaning up the excess in the market, they're a, a new competitive buyer forcing other bids to be higher because they are simply on the bid and they're, lever- they're hoping to enjoy a bunch of gains on their holdings. And just for scale, when they debuted in the middle of August, they had access to $300 million. They had an at-the-market financing mechanism that let them raise $300 million that they would then put into physical uranium. Great. Within three weeks, they upsized that to $1.3 billion. So that's the amount of money that they're now putting into, not all in one go. You can't do that in uranium. There isn't enough volume, but that's how much they are putting into buying uranium it's a huge force on a market that was you know it's sort of gasoline on a smoldering fire right because the fundamentals had been improving 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 and then you got this huge new um buyer with a lot of firepower
2: um i actually i don't think gwen can overstate just how big this is um i was looking at one stat i don't know how accurate it was on twitter um but i think like they would be like the fourth largest uranium producer in the world, like with their stockpile that they have, um, you know, like they're, they're, they're bigger than Kazakhstan. Um, you know, like it's, yeah. And, and, um, I actually had a chance to talk, uh, back in July, uh, just as it was launching, um, I had a chance to talk with, uh, Peter Groskoff, uh, CEO of Sprott. And he was saying, you know, like just this whole potential, I mean, you can't have, this green energy revolution without some uh, nuclear power. It just, it's not going to work. You're not going to have enough wind power and solar power. Uh, Bank of England said, you know, like they're having an energy crisis because there's not enough wind in the country. Um, Uh He actually said that it was, it was Adam, it was, yeah. I was like, you know, that's, that's why, you know, they have a a bit of an energy crisis uh, because wind is down. yeah, so it, you need you need stuff and, and nuclear is part of this this discussion of this of this green revolution.
0: On the other side of this, though, uh, Niels, um, I, I think the critics would say of uh, nuclear plants and um, I, I <laughs> it would be that, um, you know, these things still cost a decade to build right now. Um, and, uh, you know, they have been getting themselves have been priced out of the market, uh, just on, uh, you know, it's just cheaper to set up a natural gas plant than it is to actually run a nuclear power plant, even if it is something that has been built, you know, many decades ago and, uh, you know, they are building these things, but, uh, you know, they're building them very much in kind of statist uh, countries. They're building them in places like China and Saudi Arabia and Russia, because you can see the incentives around there for actually building those things are going to be different where you might have a more exposure in such a place like, uh. I don't know in the Americas or in the Europeans uh, and the Europe's as well. Uh, sorry, Niels.
2: I just wanted to, add, I mean, I think though technology is changing. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I still have doubts about nuclear energy, especially when it comes to waste process. Um, like that's a, a, a red flag that it's all, you know, every time you hear of nuclear energy, you know, things, Chernobyl pops up or whatever. But technology is changing. And uh, I think you've done some reporting on this about you know, the, these, these micro uh, reactors and smaller reactors uh, generating, um, and you know, having smaller reactors around everywhere to generate electricity, to generate power. I think that might be, that's gonna be an interesting part of this discussion. I think it's just how technology is changing.
0: I'll bring you in in a minute, Gwen, but uh, correct, uh, there has been uh, the Boris Johnson government has uh, in the UK, uh, they've gotten behind uh, technology uh, just regarding uh, mini nuclear reactors. Uh, just the idea that you actually have something that is contained, small, that can actually be a mass, um, that can be actually uh, mass produced. And so then you put it on a flatbed truck and then you send it off to a site and then it can be hooked up. Uh, it seems that it's going to have a uh, much more, how would you say, it should be a safer. And also you're not building something that's going to be lasting, you're going to be able to actually build something that you're going to be able to uh, advance. And then you're actually going to be able to also maybe potentially get uh uh you know uh scale in terms of actually kind of making these things cheaper. But then again, uh, you know, these things are gonna be taking at least a decade to build out technology and then also kind of getting the um uh, getting all of the permits, whereas what you're looking at right now, which is happening with renewables, uh, you know, this stuff is happening now. It's being built now because uh, the uh, times to actually build these things are much less. Uh, sir, Gwen.
1: So you need to be in, a, in an environment, a government where there's a lot of support for this to happen. Um, it doesn't really matter, though, that there's not, that that isn't every country. What matters is that China is, um, I, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I know you guys ask about a number, and the number that I was going to use, and maybe I still will, is 150 and 15. So that's 150 nuclear reactors that China's building in the next 15 years. And they're building those so that they can create 200 gigawatts of new energy by 2035, which is enough to power 12 Beijing's. Okay. It doesn't matter if every country in the world isn't doing it. It doesn't matter if France is shutting down some reactors or if Germany wants to build more windmills. It doesn't matter on the uranium supply demand side of things. All that matters is that China is doing it in a massive way. And absolutely, one of the things just yesterday, um, there was a the day before yesterday, sorry, the day before yesterday, there was a huge spike in uranium stocks, and I was like, what's going on? The spot price isn't moving. What's going on? It was a Bloomberg article about China's nuclear. Power ambitions. And the article went nicely into a bunch of the changes, the new uh, technologies that are available for nuclear power plants, and how they are a lot more modular, and how they don't take a decade to build, and how you can actually getting to the point where they're going to be able to convert um, natural gas plants with n- modular. Um, reactors, nuclear reactors. And so this stuff is absolutely changing. It's absolutely happening. Yes, there's always going to be perceptions around nuclear. Um, and, and that's that's just the reality. And because there's been a few accidents, sure. I mean, I could go into how much, you know, how, much, how many people coal kills every year. Um, but I, that's not the point of the conversation. The point of the conversation is nuclear is building a ridiculous amount of nuclear power capacity. They need a huge amount of uranium to fill it. And we don't make enough uranium to do that.
0: Miko hit a 10-year high back in September, and then I see again, as you know, Gwen, uh, that it was reaching an all-time high again, or at least for this year, uh, this week, actually, as well. Uh, I mean, you can't argue it's up 100% year-to-date right now. Uh, names that you're following in the space, plane
1: So the easy, the, the sort of dumb but true statement is you could literally buy anything that has uranium in the name, and it'll work. Um, and that is, true because there are so few uranium stocks globally the uranium market was terrible for so long there was no funding if you survived then you're a valid player and so there's a few dozen stocks that exist in the uranium space so you can pretty much buy anything that has uranium in the name and you will get the lift that is coming to this space and the lift is going to be dramatic I mean uranium bull markets put gold bull markets to shame if you want some of the ones that I think are um, more standout I really like um, consolidated uranium. I really like ISO energy and I have always liked next gen, but I mean, I could add Denison and Fission and you know, Cameco. It all sort of depends on um, how much money you wanna put in, uh, what your risk profile is, but they're all gonna work really well because there's just very few names out there. So when investor interest turns to this space, there's not very many places it can go. So everybody goes up.
0: Gwen? Let's do our number of the week. Uh, you have a number?
1: Well I sort of gave it up, which was the 150 over 15. It's an un- and I'll add to that. So China is planning to build 150 new nuclear reactors over the next 15 years. That is more than the rest of the world has built over the last 35 years. That's just a bit of context here and then those are going to create enough power for a dozen Beijing's. Like, like we're not talking about you know tiny town in you know the middle of nowhere. We're talking about Beijing a dozen of them. This is a very, very significant thing that's happening.
0: I gave up my number uh, a while ago uh, when we had our inflation discussion. Paul, what's your number?
3: Well, I'm going to touch on something we haven't really touched on this week. Um, as you know, I like copper, so let's do something with copper. Um, my number is, let's say, $100 um, 100 a ton. That's the sort of premium Cadelco is pretty much asking for It's uh, to sell copper, $100 a ton above lme uh, the lme price so very good times for copper continue
0: neil's your number
3: um, mine is
2: a four
3: uh four
2: percent to be exact and uh um i, I this uh, this was i came from a story from uh energy our, our journalist uh who covers uh um cryptocurrencies um four percent of um, the population, according to one survey, four percent of the population uh, uh, has quit their jobs because of cryptocurrency windfalls. Um, so you know that's that's adding to this whole labor shortage debate. There's you know there's uh, uh, cryptocurrency millionaires driving their Lambos and uh, you know not going back to their jobs. Uh, and it was it was actually it was and it's the low wage job sector that's being affected. It's it's a, actually a really good article. I do encourage everybody to read it.
0: My number is 60%. Uh, We've seen a fall in iron ore prices of about 60% uh, since May. Uh, It shows you that uh, in this resource space that uh, there has been uh, some real run-ups. Again, there was the run-up in lumber. And you also see the worries that is happening in China. That is um, data from uh, the Lang Steel Cloud business platform. And the number comes to us according to Global Times. That's it for us. Uh, Gwen, any last plugs?
1: No, thanks very much for having me. If you guys are, if anybody out there is interested in in seeing what I do, uh, my website is resourcemaven.ca and I have free trials there so you can uh, check out my work.
0: Uh, you can reach out to us. You can follow me at Michael McCrae on Twitter. That's McCray with two C's. Uh, Neil says that Neil's underscore C. Paul, what's your handle and what have you got coming up?
3: Mine is, you'll have to help me with this cgs 2021 Gold. Is that right? I can't remember.
0: <laughs> You're on Someone your own one, totally.
3: <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, ColumbiaGold.co is the website. Uh, we have the Columbia Gold Symposium in uh, about 10 days' time. Um, Two day event, copper and gold in Colombia
1: and Ecuador looking very, very good.
0: Gwen, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thanks so much, guys.
0: She's Gwen Preston. She is a resource maven. My name is Mike McRae and you have been listening to Round Roundtable.